The Future by Stefan Molyneux. Chapter 33. I take a deep breath. I want to know it all. David sits and nods. Where do you want to start? I muse for a moment. Now is the time to begin scanning this new world for opportunities, for weaknesses, for... Yeah, fear and praise and respect. I know myself well enough to accept my vanity. Well, the standard question for someone waking up from a coma, I guess this has been a very long coma, is... How long has it been? A little over 500 years. I inhale sharply and suddenly remember some VR game my grandson had strapped me into more than half a millennia ago now, where I floated above the rings of Saturn. I remembered and remember now the feeling of looking at the tiny sun and feeling so terrifyingly far away from everyone and everything that I involuntarily ripped the helmet off and never put it on again. The idea of floating in a dead void, countless miles from the teeming ball of life that gave me strength, was unendurable. David says, It's a lot to process. We, we can stop here if you want time to. I raise an imperious hand. Don't be ridiculous. I'm a grown man. <laughs> a harsh laugh escapes my lips. Perhaps the oldest man in history. I don't remember much about my last days, but I guess I wanted to live, uh, and they, they f- froze me. And you found a cure, and I'm back to life now. Dear God, I, I don't even know how old I am. You are 76. I furrowed my brow. That's... What is the longevity here? With luck, you could have another 50 years. I clap my hands together, rubbing the palms furiously. By God, this is a brave new world. That's fantastic. Something in his eyes flickers. A kind of vague warning that I should not be too happy about my future lifespan. But again, he is so hard to read that I decide to avoid any puncturing of my sudden savage joy. David purses his lips. I want to correct you on something, though. We didn't just find the cure for your illness. It was found centuries ago, but we didn't know about your existence until recently. I nod slowly. So there must have been a significant discontinuity in the history of my nation. David stares at me. The greatest possible discontinuity, I would say. A slight chill flickers through my heart. It's been taken over then? I assume China? Your nation no longer exists, but it has not been taken over. I laugh involuntarily. Oh, <laughs> tank under the sea? Global warming? CO2? No, your nation was not destroyed by plant food. I feel an odd, shimmering mixture of, of despair and hope. I gain power by lying, but not having to lie. I could see that being a sweet relief of a kind. 
I don't know what to ask next. Well, you have a lot of physical needs to attend to. We have been stimulating your muscles, but you will still need to learn how to walk again. There's going to be a lot of physical therapy. I assume you don't want to use a sky chair. Oh, a wheelchair, I mean. A sky chair? It's a floating chair, controlled by your eyesight. I ponder this for a moment. My extended zombie life was like falling asleep in 1600 and waking up in the 21st century. I feel a sudden attack of strange giggles. <laughs> Imagine me zooming over a crowd, gesturing while giving a speech like some comic book villain from the future. I then feel a sudden stab of regret because I have not asked about my family. Damn it! That does not make me look very good. I make my dutiful inquiries, but David informs me that no other member of my family was found in the underground facility they discovered quite by accident, and that every other capsule was broken. To be honest, we had some discussion about whether to raise you at all, since you are alone, and we had no contractual obligations to do so. But we still have some work to do absorbing and understanding the past, and you can be a crucial part of that process. I feel dizzy. Tell me what kind of world I'm in. David takes a deep breath. It's glorious. He gestures outside my room. It's very different from how you grew up. Society is run on a series of voluntary contracts. Everything from police to courts to prisons to geographical defense. I'm using old terms. You get the idea. And everyone competes to give you services and you can cancel at any time. He stops noticing my expression. Say it. You can be frank. Whatever you're thinking. I snort. You really want to know what I'm thinking? I do. My first thought is that I took a nap in the afternoon, went mad, woke up in an asylum, and you are my cellmate. David smiles. I could totally understand what you mean. If I had gone back in time, I would feel that I had woken up in a mental hospital as well. Oh, so many questions are tumbling through my mind. I have a sudden, vivid memory of being a young child in some ancient arcade in a wind machine trying to push my sister's blowing hair away from my stinging eyes. Well, who the hell is in charge then? Annoyingly, enragingly even, I get the sense that David understands my question perfectly, but avoids answering it. What do you mean? Oh, don't be obtuse. I snap in my ancient habit of escalating others into crumbling deference. David spreads his hands. You and I are separated by many centuries. The language has remained similar, because it turned out that language usually mutated to escape trauma. But many of the words have changed meanings, so I need to ask you, what do you mean when you ask who is in charge? I take a deep breath. Suddenly, I do not want to ask the question directly, which is unusual for me, because my bluntness was always a great way to get others to give way. Who is the central authority? David purses his lips. All right. You know that in some cultures, marriages are forcibly arranged by the elders, right? I scowl. As a man over five times your age, I don't think I need any anthropology lessons. 
I feel another thread of panic sewing its jumpy way through my heart. My ill temper and impatience seem to have no effect whatsoever on this man, David. He says, mildly, I'm choosing to use an analogy as a path for you to walk so that you can arrive at a clear understanding of the world you have woken up to. I can certainly continue, or I can stop now. It's entirely up to you. I want to respect your choices. I grimace. Are you a Christian? I ask suddenly, having no idea where the question comes from. That reference is probably the closest you can come to understanding who I am and the world that exists. Once again, my words arise without my willing them. Are you an angel? David laughs. (laughs) Probably a devil, a little bit, from your perspective. I scowl. If we brought my wife back in here, the one without a face, do you think that she would answer my questions directly? David pauses. Uh, It's probably clear that I'm trying to lead you somewhere, slowly. But I know that you are a strong-willed man, so it doesn't surprise me that you are not easily led. Let me tell you a story. When I was little, I used to pick and boil peanuts and sold them at a county fair for 25 cents a bag. I made enough money to invest in barley when the price was down because the weather was good, and then I sold that barley for a huge profit. I then bought a series of houses from the county. I found out who had died from the mortician and got the places for pennies on the dollar because there was usually no next of kin. I rented out these houses. (laughs) I was just a kid, remember? And bought three huge dogs with me when I visited anyone who hadn't paid the rent. And I let the dogs loose if no one was home because I knew they would probably find the deadbeats hiding in the woods up a tree or something. And I got my money. Do you understand? My voice was soft. And I got my money because one time the dogs had their way and word got around and nothing happened to me because of my father. And that was the basis of my money, my ambition, my understanding of how the world worked. You either have dogs or you hide in a tree. Do you understand? David looks Vaguely nauseous? Concerned about sharecroppers centuries dead? It's a hard frame of reference for me to process, but I think I understand. I narrow my eyes. Well, the test of your understanding is whether you just tell me the direct goddamn truth going forward. I turned dogs loose on deadbeats, Sonny. I think I can just about handle whatever syllables you want to shake out of your unwilling Mouth. I was going to say teeth, but I don't want to remind him of his power. David pauses, then nods slowly. Okay. When couples were forced to be married, the elders were in charge. When that changed and couples could choose each other, who was in charge? The couples themselves. I reply instantly, wanting to vault past all this abstract nonsense. David nods again. Your society worked, so to speak, because there was a small number of people right at the center of everything that happened, and they had the law, and the laws were enforced in the region, the country. If you 
raised taxes, of course, people had to pay or go to jail. And if they refused to go to jail, they could be forced. And if they resisted being forced, they could be shot. Your system worked on the escalation of violence against the general population until they either complied or were killed. I snort. <laughs> I have no idea what kind of ridiculous history you've been reading, but that is the most deranged and uncharitable interpretation of my world that I could possibly imagine. David does not blink. Go on. I wave my hand. Oh, God, I'm not going to give you some total explanation of how everything worked in the past. Lord above, what kind of social discontinuity happened where you have no idea how all of human history actually worked? I mean, we <laughs> knew a lot about the ancient Romans, how their society worked, what their laws were, but <sighs> are we deep underground? No, why? I laugh silently. Oh, when I was a kid, there was all this propaganda, turned out to be total Soviet agitprop, about how bad nuclear wars were and, and how everyone would end up living underground with their skin falling off. I, I just guessed that maybe there had been some kind of nuclear war, some kind of civilizational suicide, and, and we were hiding underground like a bunch of glowing moles. There was no nuclear war. Okay, then what happened? It was David's turn to pause. <laughs> now, I have to say that I'm not going to give you an entire history lesson of the last few centuries, some of which we really don't know much about. But I will tell you, if you like, how the world works at the moment, at least most of it. I nod, my eyes cold. David leans forward. After a truly unbelievable amount of suffering throughout most of the world, which we refer to as the cataclysms, everyone was so exhausted and broken that they decided, or at least some of them did, to start with a clean slate. I think the same term was used in your day. Yeah? Good. Societies, society, gets into trouble when it takes universal moral commandments and breaks them in two. David picks up a wooden tongue depressor from my bedside table, breaks it, and snaps me one half. This is one piece of wood. It's supposed to be the same between us, but it's the total opposite. Let's say that the wood is, thou shalt not steal. David points at his own chest. That means, for me, I can't use force or fraud to take someone else's property. He points at the piece of wood in my fist. But for you, as the head of state, it means that you can use force or fraud to take other people's property, which you call taxation or, or the national debt or inflation. There were a lot of words for it, as you know. I hurled a stick aside. Okay, this undergraduate popsicle philosophy is... <laughs> Well, you like that libertarian roommate everyone has for at least one semester who complains about the state, mostly because the laws interfere with his drug habits. Taxation is theft. Don't tread on me. <laughs> that crap. Like an objectivist friend I had when... And it's interesting, I guess. It's a kind of mental exercise. But you have to remember, I say, leaning forward, the people voted for me. I was popular because I did what the people wanted. 
You complaining about me is like getting mad at Coca-Cola for being popular. I lean back and smile. I truly hope I have not woken up in a world where the general perspective is that everyone who disagrees with you is a tyrant. David laughs shortly. (laughs) There's a lot to unpack there. I think the saying used to go. Look, I've been chosen to chat with you because of my fascination with the old world. Not that I'm going to lecture you about how things worked in your world from a practical standpoint, because you actually lived it, whereas I only study it. So you know infinitely more than I do. My argument is moral. (laughs) I scoff. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I met those libertarians on occasion, even after college. Sometimes they would razzle my speeches, but it was so crazy, so impractical, that they might as well have been demanding that everyone come and live with them in some Dungeons and Dragons Renaissance Fair. It was sad, really. I saw this mind beam take down a few fairly brilliant people, some smarter than you, I think. It's this platonic world of purity and abstractions. It turns people from brilliant designers who could be great architects into people who never build anything because the bricks are jagged and the mortar is porous and nothing is perfect so nothing can be done. They all just kind of <laughs> turn the world over to me, if you understand. People like me. I feel an increasing annoyance because David gives me no indication when he is about to speak. He is all about the patient listening. And so I don't know how the hell to wind down my own sentences. It's one hell of a power play. We'll give him that. David says, Is stealing wrong? I snicker. <laughs> if, this is, <laughs> if this world doesn't know the answer to that, just put me back to sleep and wake me up on you controlled. Trillions of dollars. Millions of enforcers. The education of children the creation of money, the price of money, the interest rates, you were at the very center of power. Everything you did had moral implications. I've listened to your speeches. You were constantly invoking the common good and the general welfare and charity for the underprivileged and sensitivity to the excluded and kindness to the vulnerable. You were like a machine gun of morality, so to speak. Again, David notices my expression and stops. There is a strange intimacy between us, as if two trapped miners found each other underground and hold hands as the air grows thin. We are right at the root of things, murmurs David. I nod again, involuntarily. Your skills will not help you here, he says gently. I shudder. Is stealing wrong? I nod. Why? I open my mouth and close it again. I have a sudden urge to call a lawyer, as I had to many times in my political life. Your government threw millions of people in jail for stealing. Your government used force and fraud to take trillions of dollars. But you don't know why stealing is wrong? 
and there's a very good reason for that. We are adults enough not to simply take religious absolutes as moral understanding. And you will see a world that truly understands why stealing is wrong the moment you get out of this bed and walk through that door. I force a laugh. (laughs) How much will it cost me to go back to sleep? David stares at me and says, How do you know you were ever awake? Again, chills run through me. Okay, Morpheus. David smiles. (laughs) Like the ancient meme says, I understand that reference. He takes a deep breath. Are you ready? For more cryptic questions? Stealing is wrong because it cannot be universalized. Morality is universally preferable behavior. We refer to it as UPB, obviously. There are three classifications of human behavior. Neutral, like running for a bus. Aesthetically preferable, like being on time. And universally preferable, like respecting property rights and not initiating violence. Neutral behavior is not the subject of morality. Aesthetically preferable behavior is the subject of social norms, politeness and so on. Universally preferable behavior is the subject of morality. UPP examines the nature and content of morality, validating which behaviors can be universally preferable. I hold up a hand, yawning. These undergraduate assertions rest on the assumption that there is such a thing as universally preferable behavior in the first place. David lifts up his hand and ticks off his fingers, if I may. You were going to say that people and cultures believe different things, that people disobey morality, and that there is no such thing as universally preferable behavior to begin with. Am I right? More or less, I say grudgingly. Do all cultures believe in the scientific method? Of course not. Do some people, even scientists, disobey the scientific method? Of course. Does the scientific method exist objectively, like like a tree or a cloud? Of course not. Does that mean that the scientific method is invalid or subjective? No. Some people avoid math. Some people are bad at math. And some people cheat at math. That doesn't mean that mathematics is subjective or arbitrary. It's the same with morality. I snort. (laughs) Sonny, I'm not even giving you your first premise. Morality isn't universal. So... Your argument is that there is no such thing as universally preferable behavior? I smile. (laughs) Close enough for government work. And you believe that I should stop making false arguments? It would be a damn good start. David purses his lips. So, people should make true arguments and should reject false arguments. Yes, I state confidently. David snaps his fingers. UPB, right there. You cannot tell me to reject UPB without asserting that it is universally preferable behavior to reject falsehood. You need UPB to reject UPB. It's like trying to use the scientific method to invalidate the scientific method or or logic to disprove logic. It does not work. I notice that my lower lip is jutting out and self-consciously pull it back in. What if I just avoid the topic altogether? 
David smiles. But you didn't. You corrected me. You told me that I was wrong, that I was incorrect. Not subjectively, not according to your personal or aesthetic preferences, but objectively, according to the universal rules of reason and evidence. The moment you did that, you affirmed UPB. I laugh. (laughs) Permission to strike from the record. David looks a little sad. You are more right than you know. I scowl and shift between my sheets. Ah, we are back to the cryptic. It takes a while to understand and absorb the former argument. Let's just leap over that for the moment and talk about stealing. I make no concessions. David smiles, (laughs) duly noted. If the proposal is that stealing is universally preferable behavior, then we run that through the machinery of UPB to see if the proposal can be universalized. It's kind of a tautology, but that which cannot be universally preferable behavior cannot be universally preferable behavior. That's not a kind of tautology. It's the very definition of one. David shrugged. More of an A is A thing. So, let's talk about the idea of stealing as universally preferable behavior. The proposition fails on two counts. First of all, it is physically unachievable. If stealing is UPB, then respecting property rights, the opposite of stealing, must be immoral. That which conforms to UPB is moral. That which is the opposite of UPB is immoral. Just as that which conforms to the scientific method is science, and that which is the opposite of the scientific method is unscientific, or, to be more precise, anti-scientific. If stealing is UPB then not stealing must be immoral, which means that anyone not actively engaged in stealing is evil. David points at me, his dark eyes intense. However, a sleeping man is not actively stealing. And it seems strange to say that a sleeping man is evil. A man in a coma, a man frozen for centuries. These men cannot be evil, although they are not stealing. So, UPB cannot be a positive action. Morality cannot command people to do things because there are many times in life where it is impossible to initiate action, which means that it is impossible to be moral and inevitable to be evil against one's will and desire. That is the first objection. The second objection has nothing to do with sleeping or or action, but with logical possibilities. Stealing is taking someone's property against his will. But if stealing is UPB, then everyone must want to steal and be stolen from at all times. However, if you want to be stolen from, if you want someone else to take your property, then that is not stealing. Stealing is unwanted property transfer. UPB would demand that everyone wants to steal and be stolen from, which eliminates the entire concept of stealing. If you want to be stolen from, no one can steal from you. Thus, we know that the proposition that stealing is UPB is invalid 
for both behavioral and logical reasons. On the other hand, if we say that respecting property rights is UPB or not stealing is UPB, then we are in the right realm. First of all, a sleeping man is not violating property rights. Secondly, not stealing can be universalized. It is possible for all people at all times, under all circumstances, to not violate other people's property rights. But they will, I exclaim. Stealing is a constant in human society, which is why we have had laws against it. I don't know what the hell you're doing now. David nodded energetically. Of course people steal, or at least they used to. People also want to eat food that is not good for them and often don't like to exercise. That's why we need nutritionists and physical trainers. The fact that people do not conform to abstract ideals does not mean that those ideals are invalid. It's exactly why we need those ideals in the first place. As I said before, some scientists, many in your world, were corrupted by money and power to falsify data and create future models that served, well, people like you, politicians in power. And we know that those scientists deviated from the scientific method because of the scientific method. I pause. Don't make the mistake of thinking that I am stupid or anti-intellectual. That's just a cliche. I don't believe that. But have you ever noticed that people in power have a habit of constantly attacking philosophers? I snort. (laughs) Is that what you call yourself? I do. But it's more of an inheritance than a profession. I am empirical philosophy. UPB manifested in the real world. A curious phrase of my long-dead grandson floats into my mind. Grandiose much? David sits back in his chair. It's the same with rape. Rape is unwanted sexual contact. Therefore, rape can never be universally preferable behavior. Because if rape was UPB, then everyone would want to rape and be raped at the same time. But if you want to be raped, then it's not rape, since rape, by definition, is unwanted sexual contact. Assault works the same way. Assault can never be universally preferable behavior, because assault is unwanted physical violation, unlike, say, boxing or surgery. So if everyone wanted to assault and be assaulted, then the category of assault would cease to exist. Behaviors which cannot be universalized cannot be moral. If universalizing them turns them into a kind of mirage that that crumbles to sand in your hand as you approach them, then they cannot be a valid mental construct. Murder works the same way. Murder is unwanted killing. If everyone wants to kill and be killed at the same time everywhere, then... Not only would this be impossible to achieve, but wanting someone to kill you is not in the same moral category as being murdered. It would be more in the vein of euthanasia. I stare at him. I can feel these words washing over me like a spring melt over pebbles. But they don't reach any part of me 
that has any depth. Hamlet's famous words, words, words washes over me as well. I tip an imaginary hat at David. My God, you must have some desperately dangerous impulses deep within you. David's eyes remain attentive. Go on. Ugh. In my experience, moralists are always using these weird philosophical abstractions to just strangle their own demons in the crib. What terrible things you must want to do to the world to feel the need to create all these windy nothing gods to restrain you. David smiles. <laughs> By that reasoning, scientists follow the scientific method in order to, what, subdue their own inner witch doctors? I was advised by a lot of scientists back in the day. It's not as bad an argument as you think. Perhaps, as you say, way back in the day. A writer is not combating blank pages. A singer is not combating his hatred of music. These kinds of twisted reversals were common in the past, as far as I can see. But they don't really exist in the present. I shrug. But what is the point of all this. Philosophy might be a fine way to while away a dull winter's evening before the invention of electricity, but words have never stopped a single bullet in the history of the world. No? We could argue that, but it might be outside your current frame of reference. No offense. I ponder this for a moment, surprised that I do not react more strongly. I sigh. I suppose I have to get used to being told that I am but a babe in the robot woods of the future. David narrows his eyes. He gestures, and the light grows. Do you remember why you wanted to be preserved? I think, for a moment. Back to my tumbling up of consciousness when I was thawing out all of the rolling dice of ancient history. I was not done with the world. What does that mean? I take a deep breath. I'm not sure how frank I can be. What is private in this conversation? Nothing is being recorded, and nothing will be revealed by me about what you say. And is anyone else listening in? David shook his head. I sigh. You would not believe the number of secrets I've had to keep. I disliked it intensely. I had to avoid it in my mind all the time. You can talk to your wife. You can talk to your priest. You can talk to your lawyer or lawyers. I had whole teams of them. But you can't talk to your friends about what is really going on in your life, who you really are, what you really want. Because... Because the best way to get to where I got to is, is, is to live right here on the surface, to, to turn into a teleprompter, to, to, to pour yourself into what you're saying so it becomes your entire self. I lean forward, feeling the easing of a great tension within me. The people, we all participated, I suppose. Everyone said they cared about the common good. Everyone grabbed all the free money we willed into existence, covering themselves with words like a 
like a chameleon covers itself with the background. This is all nonsense, of course, but I understood so much about the world I ran that I, that I didn't want to just fade into nothing and take all these secrets with me. <laughs> I am, of course, quite delirious, so none of this makes any sense, and none of it is true in any way. But these are the words that are coming out of me. Obviously. David nods. I love history. But you could never talk to anyone in the past, anyone who mattered, because they were either dead or lying. Anyone who mattered became prominent or famous because they kept secrets. They lied. You read an autobiography from the past, it's mostly just a bunch of self-serving propaganda. Only charming weaknesses were revealed. Everything else, even those, was just a kind of self-portrait of self-conscious magnificence. I don't know what Socrates really thought, or Plato, or Diogenes, or Alcibiades, or Napoleon, or the Duke of Wellington, or you. I made a very strong case for returning you to life. There were many who opposed it. <laughs> I am your Dr. Frankenstein, your necromancer. Why were they opposed? David pauses. And I feel a certain iridescent delicacy in his oblique considerations. And once more I curse my inability to read people in this mad future realm he takes a deep breath and stands. I've given you some bare details about the world you've woken up to. You will take a long time to absorb how things are, how they work. And when you went to sleep as a prominent man, a president, the world's most powerful man, some would say, you had an expectation of waking up in a world where you would still be I don't know if revered is the right word, but you would be a historical figure, prominent, weighty. I mean, I mean, if Napoleon were to come back to life, if we found him frozen in a glacier or something like that, then, well, what would you think? I smile inwardly. I would have a lot of questions. I wouldn't agree with everything he had done, of course, but he had his time, he had his reasons, and no one can doubt his importance in European history. French history, legal history, world history. David puts his hands on the railing at the foot of my bed and leans forward slightly. And, and how would you judge him? I shrug. I don't know that judgment would have anything to do with it. What am I going to do, cast my morals back a couple of centuries and try to catch him? I would be curious. He would be a forceful personality, you can imagine, and... And I guess he would make and break some historical controversies. But I suppose historians would either believe him or not believe him, depending on their own beliefs. David leans forward slightly more. And what about a slave owner? I start and shrink back, almost imperceptibly, I hope. Slave owner? I whisper. Yes. Those were very real questions in my day, I know. I laugh suddenly, 
<laughs> it would have been a pretty wild thing to hear a living man make the case. <laughs> it would have driven the lefties wild. He never would have made it out of wherever he was speaking. What was legal in his day was so utterly immoral in your day that... My face freezes suddenly. It hits me like a comet. Oh my God, I'm a war criminal. David's eyes widen slightly. He pauses. Not necessarily. Judgment at Nuremberg. There will be a trial. And you will have your defense. But you and your son set the cataclysms in motion. And humanity, the billions dead, require a reckoning. I snort with false courage. This future world of crystalline abstractions seems too delicate, too refined, too... uh, I can't think of the words, but I can feel my way through the ideas. Unspoiled, came the thought, but to me that was more about childhood than nature. I forced my distractions aside. You would put Napoleon on trial? Would you put a slave owner on trial? We're not talking about slave owners, I say evenly. You did not correct me when I referred to Nuremberg. We're talking about national socialists, Nazis. Not really, said David. No? It sure as hell seems so. He purses his lips. The national socialists were tried. Most of them were sentenced to death. And of course the soldiers were let go because they were only obeying orders. It was the military and civilian leaders who paid the highest price. And no one could resurrect that deadly movement. Humanity had learned its lesson. History and morality won in that case. But it was it was those who thought that all the evils were in the past and justice had been done and the final lessons had been learned who created the worst possible world. Whoever genuinely questions morality is incapable of great evil because doubt clouds their resolution. Those who believe that the morality of the moment is like eternal physics are the ones who set fire to the world. Tell me, Mr. President, did you ever doubt what you were doing? I do not answer. I plead the fifth. Echoes in my mind set to the opening notes of Beethoven's most famous symphony. I don't mean the strategy or the tactics or whether you would win or lose, but deep down, the entire system, the lies you talked about, the unsustainability of it all. You had to know that your country was coming apart, that bad actors operated at every level of your government. You had to know, mathematically, that which cannot continue will not continue. The schools kept getting worse. The unfunded liabilities were 20 times the size of the entire economy. The media lied with impunity. Foreign billionaires corrupted your entire legal system. What did you do with the knowledge that it could not continue? I laughed suddenly. (laughs) Are you really saying that you have no politicians in your world? David nods. Your world now, by choice. (laughs) I believe you. I truly do. He cocks his head. Why is that? We didn't 
think that long in that way. We talked about giant abstractions, I guess like you do, but for an entirely different purpose, I bet. But we just operated minute to minute. I inherited these unfunded liabilities from, what, two or three generations before me? Everyone just wanted the ride to continue for another year, another month, another minute. Like addicts, murmured David. I sigh. No, not like addicts, David. Yeah, we inherited a mess, and anyone with half a brain knew that it couldn't continue forever. But I try to grab the reins, perhaps to slow things down a little bit before... And here's the thing. In the world that was, the world that I won, you couldn't tell any truth at all, you know. For reasons I could never really understand, but, but which I'm sure you will lecture me to death about one day, quite soon, people had just become enraged by the truth. The body politic, the, the, the voters, the citizens, were like an immune system, and, and the truth was like a deadly virus to everything that was. A couple of people every generation would somehow escape this basic fact and sail confidently into social discourse, especially after social media, I'm sure you know what that is. And they would cling to and grip the truth as if it was some kind of magic shield that made them bulletproof or invulnerable to blowback. It was like watching a kid. I don't know if you have kids. Probably you do. You have that air. But when kids are little and they're playing hide-and-seek, and they cover their eyes and squeal that you can't see them because they can't see you. I guess that's cute for a toddler. Not so cute for a middle-aged man. I laugh. <laughs> These truth-tellers would hold up their arguments and, and diagrams and, and charts and data, all very well-sourced, all totally impeccable. And they would summon this intergalactic crap storm and you could see them. You could hear the creak of their eyes widening. And they would hold up their facts like that would stop the bombs falling on them. <laughs> and really, it was ah oh, pitiful, really. You'd think that somebody who claimed to deeply understand the truth would actually know that the truth didn't mean a damn thing in the world. The truth had value if it served power. That's about it. And anyone who spoke any truth that interfered with power, well, we utter foot soldiers, we could just target paint these heroic truth tellers and just <sighs> nuke them from orbit. So, you knew what was true. I snort impatiently. Ah, What was true? Maybe not now. I can't imagine it. What was true was that the truth didn't help you at all. Quite the opposite. Look, if you're a sailor, a, a captain in the middle of the ocean, and, and for some reason the Earth's magnetic pole reverses, well, you just have to go the opposite of what your compass says. I had a friend when I was younger. Really cynical guy, but very funny. Well... He got into old-timey photography, developing actual negatives, no computers. He got so good at looking at these negatives that he could literally see 
the actual picture in the negative, in the opposite of what it was. When the truth becomes a landmine, you just dance in the opposite direction. And believe me, there were way worse people than me circling the throne. Way worse. One of my uncles was a trauma surgeon on the battlefield. Sometimes he just had to hack and slash people because everything was an emergency. Every body was falling apart. Was that ideal medicine? I don't know how to answer that. I don't I didn't even know what the question would mean. I'm sure he cost some lives. He told me so himself. But what was the choice? The price of saving lives was costing lives. There wasn't any other way. I forced myself to stop talking. And I realized something about myself. My general habit of conversation was to speak words while constantly scanning the heart, the mind, and soul of my opponent, or conversational partner, I guess I should say. But David's face was a wide pool of listening, still and deep, and my own concentrated sky-skidding manipulations began to emerge from his still eyes. I had a sudden urge to scratch them out knuckle-deep. David says, You are wondering if it was a good idea to wake up. I jet out my lower jaw. I was about to say that it was not my choice, but I suppose it was because I chose to go to sleep to begin with. More words came. But I will say this, though. I clear my throat suddenly. <clears throat> no, it's a question. My question. Other people wanted to let me sleep. Perhaps forever. I don't know who's paying the bills anymore. But you say this is a kind world. A gentle world, I suppose. But you also say that there was a lot of debate about waking me and that you won. And I don't imagine you have a death penalty for whatever the hell I'm going to go on trial for, because there wouldn't be much point waking me up just to kill me. But do I have the option of you putting me back to sleep? You want to escape judgment? I laugh harshly. <laughs> oh. For all I know, David... I died the moment I was frozen. And this is the trial that everyone talked about when I was a child. David's face has grown unusually attentive, and my words scatter. The trial. If I were Peter. My words scratch their way out of my throat in a hoarse whisper. Everyone. Everyone. It didn't matter if you were in church or not. Everyone I knew, we all gambled, like the opposite of Pascal, that, that all of this, that all of this maybe would, was never going to come to pass. That it was all just a scary story invented by, by wolves and shepherds to keep the sheep in line. And we were proud to be above it. That gave us strength like, like superheroes. The, pe the people who feared that, that this could happen... They had to tell the truth. They, they had to keep it in their pants. They lived in fear, but we didn't want to live in fear. But now I wake up in a white room I cannot leave, and, and, and my wife has no f 
face and you were standing there with your goddamn frozen face talking about good and, and evil and, and trials and, and, and guilt and, and punishment. Punishments, I assume. And I am scared. And, and, I, and I don't admit that very easily. Is this the future? Or is this hell? David's eyes sharpen further. And I can see, almost like scrolling text, the phrase, Why not both? He leans even further forward, almost over my legs. It's horrible to sound cryptic, but it's a complicated question. Heaven is hell for the devils. Maybe it's the same place. You love it if you're good. It's hell if you're... (laughs) I used to think, when I was younger, when I read about it, that hell was not a lake of fire, but the absolute certainty that you had been evil. The stripping away of every delusion about virtue, every manipulation of morality. Nothing but mirrors and regret for eternity. He gestures at me. You lived in a world that supported and reinforced everything we now condemn. You chose, I suppose, to navigate according to approval, popularity, the success that would have been denied you if you had asked any real questions. And it's tough. I understand that. I sympathize with that. But the truth is that the world that woke you up, the world that is, only came into existence because people rejected approval and popularity and conformity. You know the stories of Jesus, of Socrates, and Aristotle, and Plato, and countless others, and all the scientists and doctors who were condemned for advancing their disciplines. If you can't be hated, you can't help the world. And you had a choice, because there were many, many people in your world, in your day, who chose the truth over success or popularity, over power. And that's why we have this world that we love. If everyone had been like you, there would be nobody left to wake you up. The power would have failed and you would have rotted in your icy box. You would be dead in a dead world. So, you are alive. (laughs) It's a strange paradox. Because people were the opposite of you. They only exist to judge you. The world only exists to judge you because they were nothing like you at all. David shakes his head with a little shiver as if clearing water from his ears. No, Mr. President. This is not hell. and You are not dead. Although by the end of the trial, you might disagree 
I feel a sudden ancient strength flow into my arms. I reach over and pull my sheets aside. I swing my legs over the side of the bed and struggle to stand. David catches my elbow and helps me up. I turn my scornful face to him. I've slept enough. I rise to my full height. Judge me and be damned!